This message comes from NPR sponsor, Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath Learning Format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This is Fresh Air. I'm Tanya Mosley. When you're a teenager trying to figure out your own identity and how you want to be seen, one way is by asserting who you are through what you listen to or watch or play. Sometimes the more esoteric, the better, because it shows off your ability to discover these things before anyone else. It shows your discerning taste. Our guest, Hua Xu, writes about that time period during his high school and college years and the complicated search to find out who he really is in a new memoir. She was a culture critic for The New Yorker, where he's been a staff writer since 2017. The son of immigrants from Taiwan, he writes, We could never write in a way that assumed anyone knew where we were coming from. There was nothing interesting about our context, neither black nor white, just boring to everyone on the outside. Where do you even begin explaining yourself? His best friend, Ken, was Japanese-American and came from a more assimilated family who had been in the U.S. for generations. Hua Xu's identity and his understanding of his past, present, and future came to a turning point after Ken was shot and killed during a carjacking. It was the first time he'd lost a friend and the only time he'd lost someone so violent and suddenly. Ken was killed in 1998, and she has been reflecting on it ever since. This memoir reflects on the meaning of that friendship and the struggle to find meaning after the murder. The book is called Stay True and was awarded a Pulitzer Prize this year cited as an eloquent and poignant coming-of-age account that considers intense youthful friendships, but also random violence that can suddenly and permanently alter the presumed logic of our personal narratives. Terry Gross spoke to Shu last year when the book came out. Washu, welcome to Fresh Air. I love your memoir, and I'm so glad we have this chance to talk. Thanks so much for having me. It's, it's, really, it's a real delight to be here. You're so obsessed with music and have been since you were a teenager. <laughs> yeah. Your father your father loved music, classical music when he was living in Taiwan. In the U.S., he discovered Dylan, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, Aretha, Guns N' Roses, Hendrix, Ray Charles, Neil Young. Um, and as an act of rebellion, you didn't listen to music. <laughs> he was listening to music. You'd be listening to baseball games on the radio. I find that so amusing, you know, that someone <laughs> who has been so obsessed with music for so many years, like, initially rejected it as being, like, uncool. You know, I, I'm a parent now, and I really think that children, you know, you're you're supposed to not think that what your parents are into is, like, cool or relevant to you, and or at least at certain ages. And so I think when I was younger and my dad would always be dragging me to the record store, he would be watching MTV, he would be taping his favorite videos on the VHS tapes. I just thought like, this is what adults did. Uh, I was just more into the things that, that I felt like I had discovered for myself. So for whatever reason, I was just listening to a lot of daytime talk shows and baseball games. I just thought music was the least cool thing you could be into. Uh, but then when I got to middle school, I realized that he'd really prepared me for, um, y- you know, some of the esoteric knowledge that becomes your currency when you're a teenager. You fell in love with Nirvana's Smells Like Teen Spirit when you were 13, and right. you, you, you became addicted to the feeling that you happened on a secret before everyone else. What was so addicting about that for you? You know, it's very funny to ref- for me to reflect on it now because, you know, million, hundreds of millions of people like Nirvana and also have had a very similar experience where, 
you know, they become fascinated with what this band represents and sort of the, the rebellion that they seem to suggest. Um, I think for me in that moment, you know, I was getting into music. I had learned so much from studying my parents and sort of how they engage with music, how they appreciate it. You know, I, I was copying the things that people at my high school were into. So to hear something first and to deem it great and for no one else to know it, at least for a few minutes, because like very soon afterwards, Nirvana became like the biggest band in the country. I, I was just addicted to having this tiny kernel of knowledge, like a few minutes before everyone else. And it, it really guided me through my teenage years. What happened when you realized that Nirvana had become like really popular? Did you have to <laughs> renounce them after that? Because it was no longer like your special discovery? Yeah, and it's, again, I feel like this was an incredibly generic experience in retrospect, shared by tens of millions of people. But, you know, I was so invested in them. And all of a sudden, when when too many other kids in middle school were showing up with Nirvana t-shirts, I thought, you know, I got to move on to something more esoteric than this. I got I to gotta discover something new for myself. So I didn't really renounce them, but, you know, I just sort of eased off and tried to basically find other bands that sounded exactly like Nirvana to claim as my own. There's a paragraph I want to read, I want you to read from your book. And it's actually like the opening paragraph that gives sure. a sense of the place of music in your life when you were that age. Well, when you were a little uh -huh. bit older and could drive. Back then, there was no such thing as spending too much time in the car. We would have driven anywhere so long as we were together. I always offered my Volvo. First, it seemed like the cool, generous thing to do. Second, it ensured that everyone had to listen to my music. Nobody could cook, yet we were always piling into my station wagon for aspirational trips to the grocery store on College Avenue, the one that took about six songs to get to. We crossed the Bay Bridge simply to get ice cream, justifying a whole new mixtape. There's a 24-hour Kmart down 880 that we discovered one night on the way back from giving someone a lift to the airport, the ultimate gesture of friendship. A half-hour drive just to buy notepads or underwear in the dead of night, and it was absolutely worth it. Occasionally, a stray, scratchy pop tune would catch someone's attention. What's this? I'd heard these songs hundreds of times before, but to listen to them with other people, it was what I'd been waiting for. Mixtapes. <laughs> does that seem like ancient history to you now? It does, although I, I have been making new mixtapes to sort of give away to people at my reading. So I have, I'm actually sitting next to a stack of 60-minute cassette tapes that I had to buy off eBay. You know, writing about this time in my life when I was just, when there was nothing better to do on a Friday night than to make a zine or make a mixtape or just kind of do things not according to someone else's deadline, it, it sort of reminded me how much I love doing that. And so... Um, after finishing the book, I have been making zines and making mixtapes and other things that seem completely out of step with uh, contemporary life. When your father moved back to Taiwan, when you were still a teenager, you would communicate with him by fax. <laughs> yeah. Um, and um, when Kurt Cobain died uh, uh, by suicide, uh, that was a very important, significant moment for you I mean you really loved their music that was the first music you kind of claimed as like your own as an independent listener mm -hmm. you know separate from your father and you were faxing back and forth with your father about the meaning of Kurt Cobain's death 
And I thought he actually had some really interesting things to say about that. Do you want to talk about what he said? Of course. I mean, it was it was a moment for me when I realized kind of the power of, of writing in a way, because I was trying on a lot of ideas. You know, I think when Kurt Cobain um, took his own life, there were all sorts of newspaper op-eds about kind of the dystopian culture and angst and ennui and sort of the, the sort of... Um, feeling of Generation X, which is not a generation that I identified with, but, you know, I was really fascinated with these broader contexts. And so I would write to my father about, you know, like what I thought his life and death signified. And while I myself didn't feel like depressed per se by Kurt Cobain's suicide, uh, my father sort of read deeply into the into these essays I was writing him. And he was a little concerned and he, he was he was very much interested in sort of like, well, you know, you have to have passion, you have to have belief, but you also have to, you know, just figure out how to live. And he wrote about trying to find meaning in life, but accepting the reality. I thought that was very interesting and maybe very helpful at the time. Yeah, and and you know, when we when I was a teenager, um, the, the main purpose of the facts was for him to help me with my math homework because I was helpless at math and he's he's very good at math. And so we would he would fax me answers to my math homework. But every now and then we would sort of go on these tangents and talk about kind of what was going on in America, what was going on in Taiwan. And as a 13, 14 year old, I completely just skimmed those parts of his faxes. Like I, I was just there for the homework answers basically. And so it's been incredible to sort of look back and realize that there are these themes to his writing or that there are these things that he was always trying to get me to think about. And, and one of them is exactly what you just said, this, this idea that, um, you know, we, we grow up, we live within these certain conditions, you have to deal with them, but you also have to find your own meaning. Uh, you know, how do we sort of have a heart and not be robotic, but how do we also kind of accept some of the circumstances that we have to endure? Um, that's something I think he was trying to figure out for himself, but something he also wanted to, uh, you know, alert me to as I was getting older. So I want to talk about your friend, Ken, a close friend from your college years who was murdered. Um, and uh, I want to start with your friendship. Uh, sure. You write about him with a kind of passion that is often reserved for writing about lovers. Mm-hmm. You know, this like incredible bond that you felt and, you know, how you traveled through the world together in a lot of ways. I don't mean geographically around the world, but, you know, through the world of your lives. Um, and I'm wondering if a lot of that feeling of connection and closeness and necessity was in retrospect or if you f- felt all that at the time. That's a that's a great question. Um, I think being young, you're just sort of drawn to intensity. You know, you you think that this is either the, the best night of your life or the worst night of your life. You you think you couldn't possibly be happier or sadder. And I think there were a lot of moments in my friendship with Ken that that definitely felt that way. Just that there was nowhere in the world I would have wanted to be um, other than this balcony, smoking these cigarettes, having this conversation. And so it is a friendship that felt very special in the moment. Um, But I think, you know, what necessitates one narrativizing one's own life, it's it's the end of something. You know, it's it's a moment like the moment that took 
Ken from us that sort of forced me to actually um, reflect on things rather than continue looking forward. Um, and when you're young, you're just always looking for the next thrill. You're always looking for the next adventure. You, you want to know what's going to happen next weekend. You're not necessarily thinking about, you know, the road you've traveled uh, thus far. And so some of it is, some of it was felt in the moment, but much of it is very retrospective. Um, and it's something that has taken me quite a while to um, find language for. Ken, Ken and you were pretty different. Um, he came from a, you know, a Japanese-American family that had been here for ge- generations. He felt, you know, he was very, very assimilated. Uh, your parents were immigrants from Taiwan. He dressed more formally than you did. He, he, he wore collared shirts. And his tastes in music were, you know, much more mainstream than yours. Um, so what are some of the bands that he liked that you thought, like, these are not good bands? Um, and <laughs> how were you able to, like judge people according to their tastes, which you did, and yet still feel this really strong connection to Ken. Yeah, and, and I think a lot of it was just my own projection upon him. Like, I think he was, he was a far more complicated person than I initially wrote off. But I definitely wrote him off when I first met him because he dressed like a normal person, whereas I dressed with I sort of only wore vintage clothes, and I was just into being as different as possible. Um, he was into a lot of music that I felt to be too mainstream, although it, it probably sounded exactly like the music I liked. But I was very much just moralistic about my tastes and and um, and other people's tastes. Uh, but you know, we became friends really because he one day asked me to help him shop for for clothes, and I assumed that he meant it because he liked the way I dress. But in reality, he needed to dress as, as spectacularly garishly as possible for a party of this frat house. But, you know, over the course of doing that, um, you know, we I sort of began to appreciate his sense of humor and his, his um, uh, you know, his, his sense of confidence and curiosity in ways that I had totally dismissed when we first met in the dorms. Um, and, and, you know, over time, I, I did come to like some of the things he liked, although I never would have admitted it to him at the time. Um, did he introduce you to any music that you had scorned, <laughs> rejected, <laughs> and realized, oh, it's really not so bad. It's good. Yeah, you know, I it's it's pretty ridiculous, but he was, he was very into Pearl Jam, which was a band that I had um, dismissed out of hand uh, for kind of like really dumb reasons. But um, yeah, no, I, there are a lot of things that he liked that I now listen to a lot because, um, he was just into, he was just a very optimistic person. And so he liked a lot of really optimistic, like seventies power ballads. And they were songs that didn't necessarily capture how I felt when I was 19, but they sort of suggest how I want to feel now and how I want to think about him. Would you describe the night that he was murdered after leaving his own housewarming party, which is at a, a bar or a restaurant in, in Berkeley? Um, it was his party. Uh, this was in July of 1998. What are your memories of that night and of him that night? For many years, I was very, um, I was very hung up on, on that night, not just because um, it was the night he was killed, but because... I had, I had left mid-conversation. You know, you know, a lot of our friendship was based on these really long talks we would have 
either driving around Berkeley or smoking cigarettes on on someone's balcony. Um, we were very different people, and it was in these conversations that I think we became like we, we we sort of began reckoning with one another in these very deep and intimate ways. So that night, you know, um, I was I had plans to go to um, like a rave, like a, a warehouse party later that night, and so I told him I would stop by early. Um, I had. I was like in a new relationship. I was just kind of on top of the world. And I was just very much just constantly looking forward. I was like looking forward to later that night. Um, I was looking forward to, you know, hang out with my girlfriend. And I wasn't as present in our final conversation as as I, I wanted to be in retrospect. You know, I think one thing that um, I, I understood at the time, and I've understood more as, as I've gotten older, is that he was just a very kind of kind and open-hearted person. And he was sort of the kind of friend who would look out for everyone. And so the day after his housewarming party, he wanted to um, take this other guy out for his birthday because um, that guy didn't have any plans. He didn't want this friend to spend his birthday alone. He encouraged me to come with him. I was like, I don't, I don't want to do that. And so when we left, I was sort of like, yeah, call me tomorrow, but if you don't, that's fine too, because like, there's no way I, I want to go out with this stranger for his birthday. And so, you, you know, when I went to the party, I, I sort of kept turning that conversation over in my head a little bit, but, you know, assuming that I would just talk to him in a couple of days or something like that. So I think uh, my memories of that night are very much focused on this feeling of, of kind of um, something not being resolved. Um, something, uh, sort of leaving someone in a lurch, maybe. Um, and uh, I remember driving by later that night, probably uh, around the time or just after he'd been abducted and, and seeing the lights on in his apartment and, you know, thinking maybe we should stop by, but then also wanting to, you know, get back to my girlfriend's place. And so it's it's a night that I've thought about a lot. Um, yeah. You can't, I don't think anyways, that you can live every minute of your daily life as if it's the last time you're going to see somebody. I mean, that puts so much yeah. weight on every moment. Yeah, and, and, you know, even talking about it now, it feels a little, uh, it feels just so, um, I think for a while I did I did feel that way, uh, that, that you, you know, I think, and I've talked to other people who, who lost friends when they were younger, where you would just sort of always assume the worst. You know, you would just always assume that if someone didn't call, something terrible had happened. Uh, your mind would just sort of go to the worst possible scenario. And, um, you know, I, it, I think in retrospect, it was just uh, the idea of, of not being able to kind of move forward became just definitive of, of my reality. Huashu is the author of this year's Pulitzer Prize-winning memoir, Stay True. He spoke to Terry Gross last year. We'll hear more of their interview after a break. And TV critic David Biancooley reviews the new Apple TV Plus series, The Changeling. I'm Tanya Mosley, and this is Fresh Air. Support for NPR and the following message come from Sattva. Sattva luxury mattresses are every bit as elegant as the most expensive brands, but because they're sold online, they're about half the price. Visit slash NPR and save an additional $200.
Support for NPR and the following message come from Carvana, on a mission to make car buying more convenient and affordable than ever before. In minutes, you can browse thousands of options under $20,000. Visit Carvana.com or download the app today to get started. Do you wish stories could unfold over three hours rather than three minutes? You tired of doom scrolling? Trying to find humanity? Or maybe a deeper understanding? of why the world is the way it is? Listen to Embedded, NPR's original documentary series. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Seth Kelly, producer at Fresh Air. And this is Molly C.V. Nesper, digital producer at Fresh Air. We co-write the weekly Fresh Air newsletter. It's recaps of the week, staff recommendations, gems from the archive, and a glimpse at who's coming on the show soon, all in one place. It's also a fun peek behind the scenes what goes into the producing and editing of the interviews, and a chance to meet the people who make Fresh Air. You can subscribe by going to whyy.org slash fresh air. You'll hear from us soon. Now, back to the show. Let's get back to Terry's 2022 interview with Washu, a culture critic for The New Yorker. His memoir, Stay True, was awarded the Pulitzer Prize this year. His book is about his teenage and college years and his search for identity. He's the son of immigrants from Taiwan, And in his teens, he defined himself by the music he loved, his mixtapes, and the zine in which he wrote about music. In college, his close friend Ken was murdered in a carjacking, which changed the course of Hua Xu's life. When Terry and Hua left off, they were talking about the night of the murder. So when you first found out that when he left his own party late at night, that he was carjacked, put into the trunk of his own car, been taken out of the car and shot. Um, how much of that were you told when you told that he was killed? Uh, I don't think we knew any of that. Um, and so the police told um, told his family and told a couple of us that um, he had been killed. They wouldn't reveal any other details at that time. But within a within a couple days, I think the story was pieced together like fairly quickly and we found out and it was, it was, it really compounded the shock that it, it had been such a uh, sort of gruesome incident. You accidentally discovered, I think years later, what happened, like the details of what happened that night. You were, yeah. you were looking at a website for people who wanted their DUIs expunged. Uh, it's not like you were looking for like who killed your friend Ken, but you realized that this story was his story. And so what did you learn about exactly what happened that night? Uh, It's weird to put it this way, but I, you know, so I was just searching the internet randomly late one night and I came across a document, a legal document that essentially gave the perspective of the perpetrators. And I had never, you know, I was obsessive about a lot of things, but I was not at all obsessive about them or their motives or what had happened to them um, after the arraignment. And reading that document, I realized that there was another perspective, um, which was their perspective. Um, Nothing they could say could possibly rationalize or explain why they'd done it. And, you know, they, they themselves couldn't explain how the situation had escalated to such a way where they felt the need to actually, like, kill this 20-year-old college student who they were driving around in his own car. But it was very 
it was truly bizarre to read their perspective and for him to be this um, almost secondary character in their story because they were talking about all the things they were doing and all the things they were thinking about. And he was just sort of, um, he just sort of happened to be part of their story. And I think it was just strange to think about it that way because I had become at that point so fixated on my own version of events and my own version of our friendship. Um, I think it had, it had sort of made it hard for me to understand other versions of him that, that existed for his friend, his other friends or his family or, or people he had touched. In that document, it said that your friend Ken begged for his life. You must be imagining what that scene was like. Yeah, I, that's something I didn't know until I read the document. Um, and that was, that was, uh, it was really painful to, to read and to, um, you, you know, there are just so many details in that account. Uh, um, him asking for his shoes because they took his shoes, him, him saying that he was, he was cold. Um, and, and I think because I had been so obsessive about things and sort of fixated on writing about the past and fixated on, you know, these objects, you know, things that he left behind, things that were in my apartment, um, you know, I realized that there are limits, there are limits to what you could possibly know and limits to what these details could act, what kind of story you could actually tell from them. You know, you and your friends debated whether Ken's murder was a hate crime against specifically an Asian American, or whether he just happened to be the person who they chose to rob in part because he was a college student. Um, so you were on the side of like, this was just like a a random choice. It wasn't, he wasn't targeted because he was Asian American. Why did you take that side? Yeah, I've thought about this a lot, especially in, in recent years as, um, kind of the, the category of hate crime seems to have broadened quite a bit. Um, I think at the time, you know, there was this moment when I was, editing the the campus Asian American newspaper and we were having this debate like should we cover this should we cover this as a hate crime nobody knew that I was friends with Ken it was just a story that they had read about and wanted to look into and I was very adamant that it wasn't um, and and thinking back I think my um, I think the reason I was so stubborn about it was because I had a very specific narrative in my mind which was kind of my version of him and my version of the events and my proximity to it. And I felt a little proprietary over it. Um, I think that was a tendency that sort of built over time that I felt some some degree of like, no, like I understand this story. Um, but I completely understand why other people might have seen it that way. And maybe that would have been an interesting thing to look into. The perpetrators themselves said that his identity played no role in it, that they just saw him as a student like any other students. But um, I don't know. It's it's sort of hard to say whether... Um, it, it's impossible to say um, how, how, um, how it would have played out were he different. Um, I think another reason I was convinced that it wasn't was because there had been these other kind of high-profile hate crimes against Asian Americans in the late 90s, the killing of Quan Cheng Kao in Ronert Park by the police. Um, and these were cases where, you know, 
the perpetrators, in this case, the, the local police, had sort of accused this man of, of um, acting in a, quote, martial arts manner. Um, and, and they were acquitted of, of, of it being a hate crime. And so I thought, like, well, if that's not a hate crime, then how could we possibly prove that, that this is? Let me reintroduce you here. My guest is Hua Xu, a culture critic for The New Yorker, whose new memoir is called Stay True. We'll be right back. This is Fresh Air. The economy right now is bewildering, impenetrable, inconceivable. Not when you have the indicator of podcast in your ears. In under 10 minutes every day, we simplify the complicated news like... How does inflation drop? What the heck is a SPAC? Why are trendy little high-fiber sodas suddenly dominating store shelves? And more. Listen to The Indicator from Planet Money and NPR. Humans are kind of overrated. Over on Shortwave, a science podcast, we're only kind of kidding. We're bringing you the wondrous world of animal science to your daily life. From queer animal love stories to songbird memories, we're showing you how critter knowledge informs human science. Listen now to Shortwave, a podcast from NPR. On NPR's Throughline. We cannot function for 24 hours without cobalt. Because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Why is everyone so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on social media? This week, we're talking about the viral videos of women making marshmallows and mozzarella from scratch and how behind the sheen of calm kitchens and cute fits, there's some interesting pessimism about our modern world. And that's worth digging into. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Were there songs that you played over and over again after your friend Ken was killed? There were, and, and there were a lot of songs that I, I stopped playing altogether as well um, because they felt too um, triggering in a way. Uh, like prior to his death in 1998, I was just listening to a lot of um, indie pop music that was like sort of quiet and sensitive. Um, and a lot of that just felt not how I was feeling anymore after his death. And so I actually just kind of wholesale stopped listening to most of my music. And I just started listening to other forms of music that didn't have those kinds of like emotional marks on them. Um, But one, one song that I do remember listening to obsessively a lot with him and with our other friends um, was God only knows by the beach boys. Um, And after his passing, I would, I would listen to it kind of reverently, you know, like once or twice a year, but it was, it was very difficult to listen to because I could always hear kind of like how I had heard it in the past and what it represented in the past as well. And it no longer it no longer felt good to listen to things built around like harmony or built around melody because these were these were um, sensations that just didn't really vibe with how I was feeling at the time. So how did God Only Knows, which is such a great track, how how did that compare pre-Ken's death to post-Ken's death and your reaction to it? Well, one of, one of the things that some of my friends, Ken, um, Sean, Ben, and I would do on Friday nights is we would um, often just drive to this donut shop and we would listen to this song. And, you know, it's a 
the the harmonies on it are so perfect and gorgeous and and they they make you feel as though there's like beauty in the natural world that like people's voices coming together can can accomplish this this um perfection um of course like we were terrible singers and so it was it was like we were committing violence to the song by singing along to it <laughs> while going going to the donut shop but it was just very difficult to disentangle the song itself from these memories of singing along to it and i think in those moments but sort of like in retrospect as well i've always seen a song as like a community you know and, and a song is a is proof that people can do something together that they can accomplish something together that they can't do alone whether it's people singing together playing instruments together and i think for me just there's a kind of melancholy it's a it's a beautiful song but like lyrically it's very melancholy and that that just felt um a little too heavy for me afterwards because um it's also just uh the the, mel- the the sort of harmonies felt wrong to me. And now? Now I, I love the song again, and, and I think part of it is is kind of having figured out a way to, to move forward for myself. Um, for me, music was a way of learning, like, how to be, how to have emotions, basically. You know, like, you, you learn how to be happy, you learn how to fall in love, you learn about heartache through music before you actually experience some of these things, you know, at, at their greatest intensities. And I think there are so many songs about like romantic love that I would listen to and think, well, I don't love Ken in this way, but this is sort of like an intensity of feeling that, that I, that, that, that feels familiar to me. And so I think a lot of those songs that were actually about, like romantic love or like romantic heartache took on a different meaning for me afterwards. Um, Cause there aren't as many songs that are just about friendship. You know, um, there are songs that enact friendship, but there aren't songs that are just like about being friends. I've been thinking about this a lot about how so many pop songs, especially from the past are just about falling in love or yeah. about, you know, somebody leaving you and you're heartbroken and yeah. um, I think I think that changed, you know, after Dylan and and certainly after mm-hmm. uh, after rap. Um, but yeah, it, it's I mean, in some of those pop songs, both the American Popular Songbook and you know, rock pop, uh, soul pop. I mean, they're they're beautiful songs. They're great songs, but lyrically, they're all finding different ways to same basic say basically in the same thing, and. Sometimes it get actually, it actually gets frustrating because there's so many other things to sing about, and I think that, <laughs> I know. you know what I mean. It, but but I, I, th- I, I totally think that's changed you. a lot um, between like singer songwriters and you know Dylan and hip hop, like I was saying. Yeah, I mean, I I think like after um, after Ken's death, I I sort of only listened to hip hop because it was something I liked, but it had no real emotional content for me. Like it wasn't something that was going to like kind of like constantly remind me of the past. And I think hip hop is like the great music of friendship because so much of it is about people dreaming of conquering the world together, dreaming of getting rich together. And, you know, like how much practice does it take for two people to be able to like 
finish each other's bars? Like how much practice does it take for people to like um, uh, kind of like perfect the, the kinds of songs that, that are like uh, where, where it's like a, like a DJ and a rapper. I mean, it's, it's just a music that I think is very open to the possibilities of friendship, even though it's not often perceived that way. And that's why, you know, after his passing, I was really fixated on um, Puff Daddy, like Diddy, uh, I'll Be Missing You, because that's a song about someone missing their friend. Like so many of Tupac's songs are about just like, trying to talk to a friend and um it's so it's a it's a form of music that really enacts those bonds but also celebrates them in ways that um i felt were like super necessary to who i was becoming at that time is is there a song you'd like to end with that has a lot of meaning for you surrounding what we've been talking about about ken and related things you know there's a song that that sort of accompanied my friends and i through college and that was it's Bone Thugs and Harmony's song, The Crossroads. Um, and, you know, it was a song that came out, I think, when we were first years at Berkeley. And its themes were very abstract. Like, it's it's very much about kind of mourning the loss of loved ones, whether it's like an uncle or a friend, and hoping that you'll see them again someday at the crossroads, however you want to interpret that. And I remember I remember being a freshman, moving out of the dorms and and singing it, on uh, someone at a camcorder and just kind of making fun of how over the top and dramatic the song was. Um, of course, not knowing that in a few years, the song would feel like so necessary to us and still like quite triggering to many of us. Like um, if it comes on to this day, um, you know, I, it's, it's hard not to, to pause and, and think that there's like a, it's a, it's a, it's a sign from, from another plane. Um, but yeah, it's just a, it's a song that I think took on a, a really new meaning for all of us once we experienced something comparable to um, what they were rapping about. Washu, it's been a pleasure to talk with you. I'm really glad you wrote your memoir. Thanks so much. This was really special for me. Bum, 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 bum. Well, 
love ya, know ya forever. Got love for them both thugs, baby. Let me be Really wish you could come home, but when it's gonna die, gotta go bye bye. All the little thugs could do was cry, cry. Why they kill my dog? Yeah, man, I miss my uncle Charles, y'all. And he shouldn't be gone in front of his home when they did the rule was wrong. Pull the rope, pull the wrong. Gotta hold on, gotta stay strong when it did come. Better believe on, gotta show that you can lean on. Kwashu is a cultural critic for The New Yorker. He spoke with Terry Gross last year. His book, Stay True, was awarded the 2023 Pulitzer Prize for Memoir. Coming up, David Biancooley reviews The Changeling on Apple TV+. This is Fresh Air. When the economic news gets to be a bit much... Listen to The Indicator from Planet Money. We're here for you, like your friends, trying to figure out all the most confusing parts. One story, one idea, every day, all in 10 minutes or less. The Indicator from Planet Money, your friendly economic sidekick. From NPR. There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. Lakeith Stanfield from the movie Get Out and the TV series Atlanta stars in the new Apple TV Plus series The Changeling. He portrays a young man who achieves his dreams and goals for romance, marriage, and parenthood, only to have them descend into nightmares. Our TV critic David Biancooley has this review. The new Apple TV Plus series The Changeling, like the Victor Laval book on which it's based, is a slippery story to categorize. It's a modern fairy tale set mostly in and around New York City. But it's also a romance and a horror story and a parable and a story about a person on a quest. Which means, when you think about it, that it really is a modern fairy tale, or an updated Greek myth. And, for the most part, it's a very satisfying one. The creator and writer of this eight-part TV adaptation is Kelly Marcel, whose writing credits range from Fifty Shades of Grey and the Venom movies, to Cruella and the delightful saving Mr. Banks, the story about the making of Disney's Mary Poppins. Here, she doesn't shy away at all from the depths and subtexts of Laval's novel. Very effectively, she weaves in everything from the weight of parental responsibilities to the gloom of postpartum depression, along with sudden bursts of disturbingly intense violence. Along the way, there are witches and mysterious faraway lands, and even a storybook type of narration provided for the TV version by author Laval himself. It's a tale that begins sweetly, like a rom-com, 
then veers down a dark and twisted path. Actually, the changeling begins by telling two different but related love stories. The first is about a young woman, Lillian, who marries and has a son. The son is named Apollo, and eventually, as a young man in New York, he meets and pursues a librarian named Emma. Apollo is played by Lakeith Stanfield from Get Out and Atlanta. Emma is played by Clark Bacco from the comedy series Letterkenny. And in this scene, on their first date, Apollo looks deeply into Emma's eyes, then blurts out his true feelings. Hmm. Wow. One of your eyes is bigger than the other. What? That's not a bad thing. That's a beautiful thing. I think it's gorgeous. Frankly, you're the most gorgeous person I've ever seen. (laughs) Ever known. I mean, your soul is... My soul? Yeah. Dude, no. I mean, think of the kids we'd have. I never cared if I had a boy, a girl, twins. Okay, Apollo? Triplets, quadruplets. Seriously. What? I mean, some people want to be an astronaut. Some people want to be a scientist. Some people want to be a zookeeper. A zookeeper? I just That's want to be cool. a good father to the kid I end up having. Very quickly, just as the changeling gets into gear, Apollo does have a son. But Emma has a problem connecting with the child. Shades of Rosemary's baby creep in. And then, as the characters' visions and nightmares get more sinister and threatening so do echoes of some more mythic primordial stories. Rumpelstiltskin, Rapunzel. Before long, Apollo's family dream is shattered, and he sets out to discover what went wrong. The path leads him to secret social media sites and a mist-shrouded island, and, like Alice in Wonderland or Dorothy in Oz, he meets lots of puzzling characters along the way. One of them, a standout, is Cal, played by Jane Kaczmarek from Malcolm in the Middle. She tells Apollo to take warning from old folk tales. So, how do we protect our children? That's what Rapunzel is all about. That's the question that it's asking. Clearly I'm the wrong person to ask. (sighs) You know, the, the husband, he protects himself over the baby. The baby gets snatched. And then the Enchantress, I mean, she won't let that kid go anywhere in the world. She's like a a helicopter parent. And still, that prince, he manages to find a way inside. I mean, no matter what we do, the world finds a way in. So, how do we protect our children? That's a question that has been asked for hundreds of years, ever since fairy tales were first told around an evening fire. The new fears are the old fears, and the old fears are ancient. But when it's our turn to face them, they are made new. In tone, The Changeling is close to another Apple TV Plus drama series called Servant, and even closer to the HBO horror series Lovecraft Country. But the closer The Changeling gets to facing its demons, in a literal sense, the less it lives up to its own built-up expectations. Like so many movie and TV adaptations of Stephen King's stories, the ending here isn't so much a climax as a letdown. But that's not true of the performances. Lakeith Stanfield and Clark Bacco as Apollo and Emma are haunting and memorable, as are Adina Porter and Alexis Lauder, who play the older and younger versions, respectively, of Apollo's mother, Lillian. 
They all, like Kaz Merrick, make The Changeling a TV story worth your time. David Bianculi is a professor of television studies at Rowan University. He reviewed the new Apple TV Plus series, The Changeling, starring Lakeith Stanfield. On Monday's show, former model designer and diversity advocate Bethann Hardison. She's credited with helping to jumpstart and support the careers of models like Naomi Campbell, Tyson Beckford, and Iman. She talks to me about her career in fashion, which spans more than 50 years. I hope you can join us. To keep up with what's on the show and to get highlights of our interviews, follow us on Instagram at NPR Fresh Air. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our senior producer today is Roberta Shorrock. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham, with additional engineering support from Joyce Lieberman, Julian Hersveld, and Adam Staniszewski. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Nakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. For Terry Gross, I'm Tanya Mosley. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Your business faces specific challenges and unique opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, custom tailored to your short and long-term goals. Backed by the expertise, strategy, and resources of a top 10 commercial bank, a dedicated team works with you to support your success and help achieve your goals. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. When you're carrying around a lot of stress, therapy is a safe space to get it off your chest. If you're considering therapy, give BetterHelp a try at BetterHelp.com slash NPR to get 10% off your first month. Summer is for going to the movie theater because it's too hot to stay home. It's for driving with the windows down, listening to your favorite music. It's for stretching out while you're on vacation to gobble up a TV show. For a guide to some of the TV, movies, and music we are most excited about this summer, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR.